Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fucking ham palace guards? <laughs> there you go, UK. There's one for you, uh, and it seems like that's all I'm going to do today. Uh, welcome to the show. I am Mark Marin. This is my show. This is WTF with Mark Marin that you're listening to now. Welcome. How are you? I hope your jog is going well. I hope your drive is going well. I hope you can live through another day in your cubicle with me saying hello to you. Hello. Yeah, I'll do the old Marty Allen. Hello there. Hello, people. And well, if you're lifting weights, be careful. You know, don't don't overdo it. If you're walking with your dog, give him a pat on the head and say that's from Mark. Uh, look, we have a, a, a we have a couple of guests. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Jim Gaffigan's going to be here today for a few minutes to talk about you know Gaffigan stuff, his book and whatnot. And then Martin Starr, who I talked to for an hour. I enjoy Gaffigan. I want you all to know that when somebody like Jim comes by to talk about his new book, it's not a paid spot. It's because, uh, you know, Jim's got like 900 children and uh, well, not 900, but at least five. And he's a hilarious guy and he's an old friend I'm, and he wants to come by and uh, talk a little bit and talk about his new book. I'm like, sure, buddy, anything I can do to help you maintain this incredibly unrealistic life you've gotten yourself into by continuing to produce children. And he loves them very much. I'm just saying, you got to help a guy out. There's people who are broke, then there's people that, you know, they got to, you know, it's like, you know, Papa Jim's never going to be able to stop. But uh, all that aside, uh, I always like talking to Jim. And uh, he'll be by in a few minutes. And then Martin Starr, that was an interesting conversation. Wasn't sure where that was going to go or how that was going to work out. You don't think about Martin Starr and think like, boy, that guy never stops talking. But, uh but he was great, sweet guy, uh, interesting life, and there was a lot of stuff to uh, to to learn about him and to you know put some some other things together about some of uh, the shows that he was involved with, like Freaks and Geeks and Party Down and other things, and where he went and what he's up to now with Silicon Valley. But it was uh, he was an intense guy, and I, I really liked talking to him. 
he asked me to do something with him, but I, I didn't I didn't follow it up on that. So maybe I should call him. I don't have to do it right now, but uh, but perhaps I should do that soon. Hey, you know, um, it's weird. I talk to people about jury duty. Like I get I get summoned for jury duty. And I freak out. I'm like, I what? I got to be on the road. I got I got work. My work. It seems to me that maybe maybe I'm mistaken, but it seems to me when the original idea of jury duty was put together, they you know anticipated people primarily worked in town. A lot of times, my work is not about town. A lot of times, there's a lot of uh, you know there's a lot of things in the balance. There's scheduling and stuff. And and I and I freak out. It's the last thing I want to do. But there's part of me that really wants to do it. The one time that I called in to uh, serve, uh, it was over. Like it was a it was December, and there was just no trials going on. So I got off then. But I was sort of ready to do it. But this time, I you do get a few postponements when you're in the racket I'm in. And maybe everybody does. I don't want to say I'm special. But uh, so I, I just got the summons and I freak out and I go, I say to my friends, I'm like, what do you guys do with this jury thing? And everybody I talk to is like, man, I just don't respond to it. I'm like, but you could, you're, you're a bad American. You're a shitty American. You just don't respond to it. You just leave them hanging. So they just shoot these summons out into the wilderness, hoping they'll get somebody. And I think that's true. I think they're like relatively desperate for people to show up. But I do feel it's my responsibility. But not unlike many responsibilities in my life, I'd like to you know, push it down the road a piece until I got no choice. And then I will do it. So, uh, so well, I'll, I'll let you know how that goes. I'm still Ebola free which I'm happy to report. I hope everybody else is doing as well. Again, um, I know it's been a tough few days for for you uh, self-centered people with mild flu-like symptoms and the people that are in real trouble or real panic. Uh, I'm sorry you're going through that, but I, um, I as, as far as I know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm still Ebola-free going on, a, you know, going on 51 years. So Jimmy is in town. Jim Gaffigan was here, and he's like, he said, uh, why don't we talk for a while? And I'm like, all right. So we talked for like an hour and a half, and I told him it's going to be a while before I get that up. And uh, he said, well, I got a book coming out. And I'm like, all right, well, so why don't we talk specifically about the book and, uh, and about the, 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 the incredible um, weight. Not, to, not that he's chubby, but I just mean like you know, he's got... He, 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 he's a worker, man. He is definitely a worker. Uh, Jim Gaffigan's book, Food, A Love Story, comes out tomorrow, October 21st, and uh, we chatted for a bit. So let's, uh, let's go to me and Jim Gaffigan chat. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Jim. 
Jim, thank you. Like it's it's nice of you to come by, but I got to say that uh, it's weird that you're you're going door to door with the book. Well, you know, I just think it's I think this is an important community out here. <laughs> And uh, you but know, it's not even. It's just out today, and uh, shouldn't you be doing something else? I mean, I, I understand. No, no, that you, it's it's. I also the, I'm also giving WTF stickers. Well, okay. Well, thank you, you for know, doing it's that. Like food a love story and WTF yeah. stickers, and also stamps.com. You had to write this book. Stamps.com. I, I, oh, thank you. Stamps <laughs> would be very happy. The, that's the what is my code? Stamps.com uh, uh, code WTF. Marin, WTF. Marin. Are you using stamps.com? I've, well, ever since I started listening to your podcast. All right, all right. You know, there's two episodes that are yeah. dropped every week and uh, it's pretty impressive well thank you but that, now the book like I kind of make fun of you sometimes because uh, you know when people go I go Gaffigan's great he's one of the best comics working you know but he talks primarily about food yes and uh, but you, it, it, it's it's funny oh well thanks well you know it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's we all eat I think we do all eat and I think there's something about uh, the topic of food where I just stumbled into it where I mean, look, you, you start off doing stand-up, and you, you try on different kind of personas. Right. And you eventually just go back to the persona you had, right? Right, right. <laughs> But there was a moment where I was angry, I was smoking a cigarette, I oh, was yeah. more like a tell, and I was, you know, you energetic. Smoke. that's right. Yeah. And so, then I came back to this guy who's just kind of this, he romanticizes laziness and uh -huh. the it, what yeah. I want. Yeah. And what I found with food is I could talk about food. And there wouldn't be any grimace in the audience of like, eh, I don't agree with this premise. Even I if find they, out with cats, it's bothering me. But you can talk about animals and every, you're not going to have, everyone's going to be like, oh. Oh, you, you know, it's interesting. I talk, I make a reference to saying that I'm a cat lover, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, I can feel some of the dog lovers going, all right, I guess we'll let it go. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but, but the thing with food is, even if somebody is... You know, a longshoreman, or they they eat lobster every night. They they don't care if I don't like lobster. It's just it's just a vehicle for for jokes. And, and Do you if, like lobster? No, I don't. It's just bug meat. Because there's not a nickel's worth of difference between that and a scorpion. No, I get it. And, and what and about so, shrimp? Nothing. That's that's a cockroach. Yeah, I know. I, so cockroach. you really feel that way? Peel and eat. Yeah. That's a cockroach. Okay, but yeah, but so, you know. but you don't like the flavor. Or? I mean, I'll yeah, I'll eat it because yeah. I'm a pig. I like butter. Yeah. I like cocktail sauce. <laughs> you dip anything in cocktail sauce, yeah. it's pretty good. <laughs> so it's, but you know, the food thing. It's getting to the yeah. point where, yeah. uh, you know, I want maybe this will be the the end of this chapter. Of what are you? What life. are you talking about? The, you, I mean, I've, this book is 330 pages. It's like I've covered every topic. So, of wait, food. You, you're saying you're retiring? The I'm retiring. I'm, I'm going Garth Brooks from food. Really? No, no. Uh, of course not. What the hell would you talk about? Laziness and your kids sleep. Do you do you, do you no. don't do much about your kids? Do I you? try and I try and keep it to a minimum. Because, really? Because yeah, thought, because why, you thought maybe it's not. It'd be hard to find a new angle, or are you just protecting them. Uh, no, I'm protecting the audience. I was that 26-year-old in the audience watching comedians talk about their wife or husband and kids, and I was like, I don't want to hear it. So Sometimes I, I they it. need to hear it to learn. I, so I'll do like I'll do like five minutes in a special about my wife and kids, but other than that, it's like... 
Really? But that's odd because like, it's okay. Romanticizing laziness, food. I mean, I do lack hot of pockets. Exercise, you know, hot pockets is six minutes. And you'd think that like when yeah, I talk to people, they're that. like, it's your only joke. You know, some people think that. Well, that's what landed. What are you going to do? That, you know, hot pockets was the, 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 the culture's gateway to you. It was a blessing. Yeah. And a curse. Right. Is that in the yeah. book, the hot pocket? Have you, yes, you that's the about- name of the chapter, blessing and curse. It is? Yes. About the hot pockets bit. Yeah. You know, I was on, I was on CNN on <laughs> Veterans Day talking about veterans rights yeah and on the icon below doug stanhope sent me this picture i think yeah. it was doug no it was somebody else yeah and and my name was listed as jim quote hot pockets unquote gaffigan that's how it was listed when i was talking about veterans rights so it's like it's there's a blessing and a curse right right, right. but do you still get does do people still call it out at the show oh, yeah absolutely <laughs> do you do it yeah, I do it as an encore at the end. I don't care. They love it. Well, you know, it's, it's, I, I'll see because, you know, I'll look at my audience and sometimes there will be, you know, a 10-year-old mm-hmm. in the audience in the front row and he's just sitting there and, you know, I can, talk about, for it. I can talk about weddings. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. But when I get to Hot Pockets at the end, it's all been worth it for him. <laughs> doing, it, doing it for the kids. No, well, you know, some of it is, it's just, you know, you, you, you have a show with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and sure. there's a little bit of, like, let's clean it up at the end. But I, I, like think that, I think that you're selling yourself short on the idea of exploring your personal life, even if it's with kids, because I think that it makes an impact on young people, because if something is funny, it's funny. Like, right. even when I was a kid, I'd see older guys talk about their wives, and you'd still get a kick out of it, and, you know, somehow or another, it's going to oh, define I agree some with things. You. With, I agree with you. Yeah. But there, there is something about, um, you, you know, you got to manage what you're, you know, you can't just, in my belief, you can't just make it kind of like, and this is what I think is interesting. Right. It has to be, you know, a show. There has to be, like, I have some jokes that I love that work in Brooklyn, right? right? <laughs> yeah. Like, they, I have, tw- I have like 10 pages. Yeah. Of New York City jokes that maybe work on Long Island. Right. But, you know, the Bell House. Sure. I love doing them at the Bell House. But they're not going out to- They're uh, not going anywhere. They not, can't even, you know, I can do it maybe in the East Village. Yeah. Not Ohio, though. No. No. <laughs> no. But and they're this, not subway jokes But either. this book will speak to everybody because it's about food. And there is a chapter in there about your struggle with the, uh, the blessing and the curse of the Hot yes. Pockets bit. Yes. And your struggle with food in general. Yeah, I would say, yeah. There's, I mean, it's not kind of like, I'm going to change my life. It's like, I like to eat. <laughs> it's one it's of the- celebration. Yeah, like I write, you know, I wrote it with my wife and she was like, you should have a disclaimer at the end mm-hmm. saying that you know that these thoughts are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Did you put that in No, there? I didn't do that. You don't feel it's wrong. Because, look, we're all grown-ups here. We know we're not supposed to have a Big Mac every day. I do, but you're not supposed to. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I mean, look, when I'm the guy who gave you a coupon for a free pint of Ben and Jerry's. That's right, and I'm the guy who took it. Yeah, <laughs> and put it in his pocket so he wouldn't lose it. Yeah, you bet you won't. So, all right, well, well, good luck with the book, man. I'm glad it's out now. Thanks so much. Yep. I enjoy Jim. I enjoy him coming by. I like. I like that. I, I like. I like seeing him. He's one of those guys that I, you know, was was around. I was around when he started, and you know, we've known each. Other. I've seen him through a lot of different weights and a lot of different. Uh, I've seen him, you know, gradually. I, I remember Jim with hair. There's, you know, you know, it was it was nice to see him. <laughs> oh yeah, you know what I did is I watched this new. Someone sent me, you know, people send me shit, and let me tell you something. 
I appreciate everything you send me. If you're sending me records and all that stuff, books, whatever it is, I appreciate it. Uh, it's gotten to a point where I don't know exactly how to thank everybody. I'm not always great at you know following up on email. Sometimes if I like music, I'll tweet. I'll tweet about the music if I like it. I do generally listen to almost all the music that I get, and I do browse through the books, and I do read the letters that you send, and I, I appreciate it, and it makes me feel good, and I'm glad that you guys enjoy the show, and I'm I'm also glad that you feel like um like you can get stuff to me and I'm and I'm glad that you think that that I'm going to love it and and I'm going to say something about it on the podcast or tweet it. That's the gamble though really. You know, you're rolling the dice with that and I think you know that. And I also want to tell you that sometimes I don't have room for everything, so if the stuff doesn't stick or I don't say I love it or I I want this around or I I'm not, you know, or I'm done giving it the shake it deserves, it will enter the ecosystem. It will enter the book system. It will enter the used record system. Just know that I, I, you know, I'm not running a warehouse here. I might need to open one because I am a bit of a pack rat. But someone sent me this "Looking for Johnny: The Legend of Johnny Thunders." It's a, a documentary uh, about Johnny Thunders, the guitar player for the New York Dolls and the Heartbreakers, who I knew very little about, but always fucking loved his tone. And it it is a fucking brutal story, man. It's uh, it's it's brutal in the sense that you know he was a victim of himself. You know, drug addiction is is fucking mind blowing. But what what a there was a sweetness to this guy, man. It's just holy fuck. There are some days where I am so grateful that I didn't get strung out on dope and that I didn't you know continue using drugs and that you know that I have a daily reprieve from this shit. But I, I, but on, on another level, I'm, I'm now becoming this guy, and yeah, you know, this is, I'm not proud of this, but I can't, I can't, uh, I, I'm traveling with a thermos of coffee now. Like I have to have a thermos of coffee in my car at all times. Granted, not the worst addiction in the world, but it's a little fucked up because I don't know if I'm getting the buzz I used to. I got the thermos of coffee, I got my nicotine lozenges, which I think I've had it. I think they're fucking up my body, and I've had this conversation with you guys before. You know that I, I want, I have the desire to kick, but it's the same shit. It ain't heroin, but man, I am definitely in I'll kick tomorrow mode, traveling around with my thermos of coffee, doing speed balls of nicotine lozenges and fucking coffee, crashing out at three because I can't keep my head up. I am on a drug cycle with this shit and I'm not in denial about it. Obviously, it's relatively manageable. It's not ruining my life, but come on, man. A thermos of coffee. I'm leaving for the comedy store at eight at night to do a show with a fucking thermos full of coffee and I'm still going to sleep at night. It's crazy. I'm not Johnny Thunders, okay? But, but you know, I'm a little strung out and I enjoyed that uh, documentary. I'd, I'd like to thank whoever the hell sent it to me. I don't even know if it's out yet, but but it's uh, it was it was good, man. If you like that period of music, that you know pre-punk New York thing and how, you know, the impact he had on on punk music and just his fucking tone on that Gibson Les Paul Jr. man, just spectacular. Let me give you a monkey report. Um, I couldn't be more thrilled that my cat is doing well. He's not only doing well, he's like back to his like excited self. He's running around. He does this thing in the hallway where he does sort of this bobsled move where he runs down the hallway. And when he turns the corner, he runs up the wall a bit and then down. He's just all full of juice. And I'll tell you what I did, man. I just laid off him. I didn't give him the second run of antibiotics because I thought he was spent. And, you know, when he got sick and he started puking and I thought and he was deathly lethargic, uh, you know, I went away for the weekend. I had my friend watch him. We come back. 
And, uh, you know, I came back and, you know, he was still kind of fucked up and I was nervous, but now I got him on this urinary tract food and, uh, and I'm very diligent about giving him the, you know, the wet food and about, you know, giving him some love and the guy's all full of the beans. He's back. He's back. Monkey's back. Thank fucking God. Pow. I just shit my pants. Just coffee.coop available at WTFpod.com. If you get the WTF blend i go well on the back end that's a classic it's a classic plug all right look uh this uh, interview with martin Starr was uh, very moving to me and it was it was nice to get to know him so i i hope you enjoy it as well uh martin star and me talking where do you live i live here in, yeah uh in westwood oh you do in westwood yeah I've, I don't think I've ever had anyone here uh, in here who's lived in Westwood. Now you have. It's a big day. <laughs> yeah. That's just where you settled in Westwood? You're like... Just, just the beginning of the new barriers we're about to break. Uh-huh. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, but where in Los Angeles? I was born at Santa Monica Hospital, St. John's. So you're always uh-huh. here? I've always... Uh, I lived in Florida for one year, which was a terrible year of my life. That sounds like a good place to start. Oh, what man. year was that? Uh, I was 15. I had bought a dog in Los Angeles two months before we left. That was like a, a pit bull. Was that after Freaks and Geeks? Oh, way before. Well, not way before, but a, a year, few years, a year and a half. Your whole family moved to Florida? Just my dad and I. Oh. Yeah. Right after the divorce, or how'd that work? Uh, divorce was when they when I was four. Okay. Yeah. So your dad, what, decides, like, we're going to Florida? He, he, yeah, he, <laughs> he, he was getting remarried. Uh-huh. And so his, uh, my stepmom is living in Florida with, yeah. with her um, family. Mm-hmm. So she had three kids. Uh-huh. This is where it gets a little complicated. She was also my aunt. On whose side? Your mother's? Is there... My, so my, my mom and my dad mm-hmm. um, are married. Yeah. And my mom's brother, yeah, is also married. Okay, the two people not in that family uh-huh. of my mother and her brother mm-hmm. get married. To okay, each other. so your your father and I get it. Mm-hmm. So that must cause some drama. Yeah, <laughs> so it was bound to. So let's go back to the dog. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, so I just got a dog, and I think yeah. the the most. Uh, I don't. It was just heart heartbreaking to have to leave this dog. Yeah. I, I bought it off the street from a homeless man who had clearly just stolen it. Yeah. Um, and I didn't piece that moral decision together, but um, I basically stole a dog for $5. $5 dog. $5 stealer. It's a $5 um, dog. So I, I, I bought the dog, and then I had to give it up two months later before we moved to Florida. <sighs> and uh, It's a heartbreak. The heartbreak. Yeah. It is kind of sad, though, right? It was sad, yeah. I still think about that dog. It was this like beautiful white pit bull with a brown diamond on its forehead. Uh-huh. Um, called it Casper. Okay. Really beautiful dog. And you don't know what happened to the dog? Uh, we gave the dog to a friend, and that guy took good care of it, as far as I know. You never checked back in? I, I yeah. I didn't mm. really know the guy too well, because we didn't know anyone that could take the dog, so right. it ended up being a friend of a friend. Right. But you, okay, so you found the dog a nice home, and then you go to Florida with your dad mm-hmm. for the worst year of your life. It was pretty terrible, yeah. Well, you're 14. I mean, that's a big. You're 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 cognizant. You're awkward. You're oh, in yeah. high school, and then you're the new kid, 
What part of Florida? I was 15, and uh, Tampa, middle of Florida. Yeah. Middle of the shaft. Familiar. Yeah. The hanging, flaccid dick of Florida. <laughs> um, it's just a terrible place. So, so, not even a nice beach? No, they're like these murky, disgusting kind of waters that are warm year-round. So, I guess it's nice in the winter when it's... 70 yeah but like in the summer when it's like 110 you don't want to be in warm water <laughs> it's gross it's yeah. like going into a bath yeah it's disgusting so what was so like it was just an awkward year miserable yeah i i mean i think we started off in the summer one of the most memorable terrible things that happened was i was lighting off fireworks and yeah. perhaps this is my own karma to get myself into this place but i was lighting off fireworks and i just noticed yeah. That my leg hurts a little bit. And I looked down and ants, red fire ants, had been coming up. I'd somehow stepped directly into a an ant pile and they um just were running up my like there it was literally like just red. Yeah. All the way up my leg. Oh my and god. Up this like poncho that I was wearing because yeah. it was raining a little bit. Yeah. So they were just all over me and I was stripping, running back to the to where we lived stripping off all my clothes and down to my underwear as I ran into the door and then stripped my underwear off and jumped into the shower immediately to take a really cold shower. Yeah. And it did not, it, it still didn't work. It's just so painful. Florida. Ugh. Awful. Couldn't even enjoy the fireworks. No. <laughs> how, how many did you get off before the ant predicament? I don't know. I think one or two. Oh, man. The whole day ruined. It was pretty terrible. Were you by yourself? No, I was with my dad and my, I think my brother. Like so you just had a bolt? Did they tell you, go, get it? I just ran. They, I didn't know what to do, and I think my dad told me to go hop in the shower, so I just ran back. How many brothers do you got, just you and your brother? I have uh, three stepbrothers. Okay. Zero, zero full blood, relative, like brothers. You were an only child? Siblings. Um, I'm an only child. For the most part, yeah. I for mean, the most part, other than the stepbrothers? I mean, I, I, yeah, they weren't around too much. Right. But um, I mean, for the first 14 years, you were sort of an only child? Well, my dad had uh, my dad had a previous uh, marriage. So he'd been married once, then married Before my mom. Before your mom. Yeah. Okay, so you had and then some stepbrothers from there. I have a stepbrother and two stepsisters. Wow, so six total. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they, they're very... Interesting people, beautiful, lovely people. Is that sarcasm? No, I mean that. Oh, in, good. In all, in all, in all genuine. <laughs> That's nice. I have an interesting family. Yeah. Yeah. And so, what brings you back to Los Angeles? Just sort of like fuck Florida. Um. Uh. Yeah. I mean, that was a big part of it. Yeah. It was like, yeah, get me the fuck out of here. You didn't go live with mom. I did. Yeah, I came back and lived with mom and her boyfriend at the time. This guy Frank. Frank. Mm -hmm. Good guy. Yeah, really good guy. I think he he meant well. Really good businessman. His, yeah, his, he was very business minded, and even at that age, because he was around when I had started working on Freaks and Geeks, and he was kind of like pushing me to do more business minded things with yeah. with whatever, um, you know, the product that I was selling. That's kind of how he would look at it, right? Was, you know, and and now I understand. But then I was just like, I just like acting, man. Like I don't know why you got to make this like a thing where I'm like <laughs> I'm a product. <laughs> But he had a he had a good head on his shoulders in that regard. I just don't want to be. I don't know. I never really business wasn't your thing. Yeah, or part of like why I do this. And when did the acting start? Well, I, I my mom had a business that kind of revolved around acting, which was and she moved out here to be an actress. It was called In the Act, and it was uh, it was a business where. Um, 
casting directors and producers and directors, I think, as well, uh, would come in and share with a, a class of actors right. that had you know paid $20 to come to this class. It would share with them scenes from something they'd worked on or something they, they're doing now or something like that. Right. And, uh, and they would kind of like give... Um, notes afterward uh-huh. after a cold reading. So they uh-huh. were like basically cold reading workshops with producers and directors and casting directors. Did, did, did your mother ever succeed in acting at all? Yeah. She, I mean, she's worked for the last, um, I mean, since she came out here when she was 18 or 19. Oh, yeah? Or maybe a little. Like know, anything we'd know? 1920. Uh, yeah. I mean, she's um, she's had parts in a lot of things. I mean, she was in like Beastmaster way back when. Uh-huh. Um, She's been in a lot of stuff, man. Yeah? She's, uh, well, she was in Silicon Valley, but unfortunately for time, they ended up cutting her out. But hopefully at some point she'll be back. And it was totally independent of me. Um, Mike, oh, really? Mike Judge, yeah, had just cast her, and they were like, "We, th- uh, I think we cast your mother. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then I was, I was really excited. Uh, so, so you guys are pals? Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. I feel like every relationship is a bit of a work in progress. Ours certainly is. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we, we we've kind of we've recently taken up uh, Clippers games together a lot. Oh so yeah, we're kind of bonding over sports. And where's your old man? Uh, my dad's in Florida, so he's just down there. Mm-hmm. He's stuck with that one. Yes, he yes. leveled off. He did it. Yeah, <laughs> he found one. He did. So when do you actually start acting? How old were you? Uh, I think the first time I did anything officially, I was young. I was real young. I probably was doing classes and stuff with my mom. She would always like find scenes where if there was one extra person in a workshop, yeah, then they would do a scene with me, yeah. And I think those people didn't like it because I would always outshine them. I would always outshine them just because like oh, in her workshops, you mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. So if I was just there, if there was an odd man out, then I would go and do a scene with that person. And some people were kind of excited at it, and other people I think were bitter, and they were like, "This fucking kid's gonna steal all my thunder," just um, by virtue of being a kid. Yeah, you yeah. just like you have. Quality, like you just don't care. There's a nonchalance even just being there. So, whether you're good or not, that's it, I think what everybody aspires to. Like you got to get back to that. Yeah, totally. When you're older. So, were you going out auditions when you were that young? Yeah, I think I worked on a Bank of America commercial. Nice. I done a couple other small parts. Yeah. Yeah. And were you like a natural or what? I don't know. I, 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 but did your mom teach you? I mean, did, were you ever trained as a kid? Or? Uh, I think when I was, um, yeah, I, I definitely kind of got training later. But that wasn't until I think it was like nine, eight, nine, ten. I started taking a class with uh, this guy Kevin McDermott. Yeah, at a place he had started called Center Stage LA. Yeah, and that why was, that guy? I don't. I, I don't know how my parents had a connection to him, but um, I, once I started going there, I, I loved it. He was just a genuinely, like, compassionate person. And the way he would, like, throw things out in the middle of scenes sometimes mm-hmm. um, emulates, or perhaps the other one emulates him. But, like, Judd, I think, directs a lot like that sometimes and a lot in TV, uh, in comedy and stuff. A lot of comedy directors will just kind of, like, throw out ideas. And he had um, he kind of always did that during scenes where he would throw something out if he felt like you needed a boost or... You needed some inspiration, and you'd have to improvise around that. Yeah, it was a, it was an improv class. Okay, and I was really liked it because I felt like I was getting the reaction from my peers at that point that I that made me feel good. Right, the laughs. Yeah, yeah, for the most part, and even you know because we, we did drama improv as well. So, oh really? Yeah. I don't, what's that like? 
Uh, a lot of crying. <laughs> <laughs> and you could do it? Yeah, yeah. But before you started doing acting, were you generally awkward? Um, I mean, who isn't awkward? I, I moved around a lot, and I always saw that as like uh, an opportunity every time I moved to a new school, because I went to way too many schools. Um, but I always saw that as an opportunity to like, change the view of my, my environment on me. Yeah. Um, like, how would you do that? Never worked. Well, I always thought, like, oh, I'll change. I'll be different, and and I'll be the cool guy now wherever I go. <laughs> you were going to make that decision. Yeah, that, that you don't make that decision, <laughs> yeah. I found out after years of trying. <laughs> Every school, you're like, I'm the cool guy now. Yeah. No. But I also didn't know how to do it. Right. You know what I mean? Like, those guys who are cool in high school, who usually grow up to be nothing, um, I like the emphasis on nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take that, you sons of... Um, but, like, those guys don't know why they're cool. They just probably are graced with something genetically that they, they don't even know about, or they just don't care. Charm and insecurity. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if you're just insecure and you don't have the charm part, mm-hmm. you're in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. But if you're insecure and you're charming, then the world will be your oyster. Yeah. How's that? Is yeah. that a good theory? Yeah. Well, I just I, made it up. I, I, I don't disagree with it. I mean, I think those are two qualities that mesh well together. Charm and insecurity? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's called Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> the entire industry is built on that. So why did you move around so much? I mean, I know you went to Florida for a year, but you moved around within L.A. too? Yeah. My parents were, were very particular about the education that I got. Uh-huh. So they would constantly kind of recheck the system and find a new place for me to be. Even though it meant... Pulling you out of the social structure and yeah, well, I mean they just didn't find the the system yeah, you know, and and I went to really like you know quote prestigious schools like what um, I think the first school I went to for first and second grade was uh, maybe just second grade um, open school this place called open school which was just like a like a Montessori school, like yeah. a, where everyone just sort of like, yeah, it's up to you guys to decide what you want to do. No, it was oh. uh, it was more like a acad- It was for smart kids, like in- intentionally for like smart kids, were like you, an academics type were, school. Were you an academically smart kid? I didn't. I could do it. My my pistons were firing in that capacity, but I didn't like it, so right. I didn't do the homework. But I could pass the tests, right? And so uh, that's what ended up being the marker for me of being being able to get into these schools right. was like I could do that right? but then I wouldn't get great grades because I didn't care enough to do the homework and, and that's not what drove me yeah um, but I think I've really like peaked when I was in uh, I went to the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts oh oh, oh you did yeah when I was when I moved back from Florida so the, then I guess you were the cool kid there because everyone's a cool kid there right yeah it, I mean it was I, I found it to be an environment that was just free. It was so much more free. I hadn't been in a I hadn't been in a school environment where people were openly gay. Yeah. And that was like that clearly defined how different this was right. from every other right uh, educational environment I'd been in. That struck you in- immediately. Yeah. And it was like that's a such a great thing that people were free here. Right. And um and open. I mean there were still like the constructs of the hierarchies yeah. and all those things still kind of parlayed their way into the system, right? You know, and uh, the social structure, but it was just a little bit different. Yeah, and what what were the performing arts? The full, the full range. Yeah, like music, music, acting, theater, acting. dancing, uh, and visual arts. And did you start doing uh, you know actual acting there? 
Um, like doing plays and that kind of stuff. Uh, when I when I was just about to do our first year project, would have been that would have been my first opportunity ever to do a play, to to do actual theater. I I left to be a part of Freaks and Geeks. So, well, that's so. So you didn't finish the school? No, it was a really hard decision too. I almost didn't do Freaks and Geeks because I love that school so much, and it took me so long to like rec- to see this environment to, to like be a part of this this environment was so rewarding so what grade were you in when you stopped uh i was in a, i think i only went there for half of my 11th grade year that was all of my schooling there so did you finish high school i did i mean <laughs> kind of i don't know i i, I <laughs> seth and i were in, living together rogan? Seth, seth rogan and i were living together when uh, we were both going to like shot. I think he was like taking tests here or there. He might have even he might not have graduated. I know for a while he went to the school with you. No, but he was still like doing homeschooling right. from Canada, from right? His school in Vancouver, right? Um, and I don't know if he ever like. Then he just kind of stopped. I know that he just didn't give a shit and stopped at some point because clearly this wasn't going to be a part of the way the trajectory of his life at that at that moment. And, and it wasn't. No, and and I he may have never graduated. I'm not actually sure. Um, but I went to a school where I cheated on tests. Like they honestly didn't care enough to really monitor anything. But the choice. Me. I mean, the choice to take the role over not take it, though. Oh no, that was something that I like pondered on for a while. How? What was the audition process on that? I mean, because that show is so important to so many people and so specific. And your character, that character of Bill, was. Uh, so pivotal i mean like i talked to judd about it you know and and many of the people that i know who like that show you know that scene of you just watching television mm-hmm. you know by yourself is like one of the most powerful uh moments of television for for a lot of people that i've talked to mm. and that was that just that mm. you sitting there given your environment giving your situation and watching comedians and laughing there's a you know it was it's just a defining moment so mm-hmm. How how was walk me through the process of how all that happened? Because Judd and 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 Paul were so much younger too. Mm-hmm. What what was it like? Uh, my experience, my memory is um, meeting with Allison Jones and reading for casting agent. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh the one and just a wonderful human being, like really just a sweetheart. Um, but I went in and saw her, and I read for Sam, and then and then I think I read for Neil, and then. Uh, or maybe I read for Sam and then she brought me back in for Bill. She was like, go read this and come back. And uh, so then I came back in and audition again. And then she was like, she was like, that was great. And she like, you could see, she was like, that was great. And I was like, okay. And then I just left. It just To me, it was just kind of like another audition at that point. So you had already been sort of, um, you accepted auditioning as not necessarily a personal rejection, just part of the process of trying to do what you want to do. Yeah, I think now it's a lot harder. It's funny how then it didn't matter. I also didn't think I was ever going to be an actor. I never thought that like that was something that I could possibly do because it seemed so far-fetched to succeed in that arena. And I was very aware that like it wasn't just talent that it took. It yeah. took a lot of drive and, and generally success in whatever field takes so much more than a single trait or characteristic. It takes a combination of a lot of things and drive is the biggest one. Um, I'd say for for most people, um, and but you didn't, you didn't feel like you had that. No, I just didn't. I didn't think like I didn't know. I didn't trust myself, or right. no, I knew that like within my 
um, acting class and my improv class, I felt like the man, but, um, and I felt like I, I could handle myself there, but I didn't know that I could ever succeed in this business. It's such a huge business. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, but I left that audition just thinking it was another audition. And, uh, and at that point it was, and then I got a call back and I, and, uh, I think Judd and Paul were there eating pizza or something. Um, they'd just gotten lunch and they were trying to take care of everybody that was waiting in the waiting room. So they, they weren't like sitting and eating, which a lot of people will do and just like make people wait. Right. Um, they were like very, um, understanding. They were, they were just very courteous. Um, and so I remember going in and auditioning for them and then leaving and then getting called back to go to NBC for um, tests. So it's, in, so it's interesting that you, you know, like you w- wanted to commit your life to this, but you didn't have that much confidence in it. I just, I had confidence in my own ability. I just didn't have confidence that like this was the thing. Like I, I still wanted to be like a veterinarian or <laughs> I was still like trying to figure out, you know, when you're 16 years old, you're not, I, at no point was I like, this is it. Like, yeah, this is what I have to do, right? Because um, you're still so unsure and awkward, or at least I was. Yeah, I never had this um, decision. I never right. made a decision. I kind of like let my environment make that decision. I think after Freaks and Geeks, I was like, oh, okay, so this is it. This is what I get to do. Right. So now I just have to put everything into it. Okay, so you get cast. They tell you you're the guy. Uh huh. When do you meet everybody else? Uh, well, I met everybody. Uh, at the tests, I think. Well, I, th- I I met Sam. I met um, uh, I met Sam Levine, and I met I think I met Sam Levine there, and I met uh, John Daly there, and then three other people who were testing for each of our parts as well. Mm-hmm. Relationships started to form pretty quickly. Yeah, with who? Um, I think James and I became fast friends. Seth and I kind of became friends because we were the same age. Um, and him and Jason kind of bonded the three. Those three guys became pretty fast friends. And Sam and I used to hang out a lot. And then John, I'd try to hang out with a lot, but because he was two or three years younger, it was just a different environment because yeah. he couldn't necessarily come and hang out the right. way that like Sam and I had the freedom of having cars and doing what we wanted. And he was still kind of under the authoritarian household family regime. Right. He had to listen to his father and stuff like that. So I it's mean, interesting. You became friends with James at first. Uh, no, I just, I remember as the series went on, he and I, I think of the, of the freaks, um, Seth and I became the closest and then James and I became pretty close as well. We started like writing, we wrote a short together and, Uh um, are you guys still buddies? I don't, I don't know him very well. I don't feel like at this point. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it is. It is a little weird. Yeah. There's, um, I don't know. It's uh, sometimes like those barriers are bro those bonds are broken and you don't know um where you well he seems to have taken sort of a different trajectory than yeah. than a lot of a lot of you guys i guess are you yeah. and seth still friends oh yeah 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 so james is the one that kind of went off and did whatever the hell he's gonna do well i think everybody goes off and does what what they want to do yeah um he just was tremendously ambitious and kind of did all these things that you know I, I don't know that I have the desire to do. But so it's it's interesting to me because like I still even as a guy who who sort of works in show business that like my my feeling is like well you guys all have to be friends forever, you yeah. know like it doesn't like you know you get emotionally attached to people who play roles you know over a period of time yeah and you just make these assumptions 
like all of them have got to be, still be friends for the most part yeah so yeah. you move in with seth like during freaks and geeks just after we were 17 i think we were both 17 yeah and then pretty shortly after that i went off to do my first big movie and i was like this is it i'll do a big movie i did a tv show i did a big movie the movie will come out and it'll be hot shit it'll be gravy yeah i kind of got a big head which movie was it a uh, movie you've never seen uh-huh um it was called cheats yeah. It was initially called Cheaters, and then we couldn't name it that because of the Jeff Daniels um, TV movie of the week uh-huh. that came out by the same name, I think. So we changed the name, and then, um, I, 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 I don't know. It was kind of doomed. That, yeah. That movie was kind of doomed. What was it about? It was about four guys uh, who cheat on tests as like a business inside the school. That's uh-huh. what they do. And... I was the guy who writes crazy small. So, like, people would, you know, if you were chewing a piece of gum, mm-hmm. on that wrapper for the piece of gum would be all of the notes you needed for the right, test. Right, All of the answers right. would be there. I was the guy who did that. Um, and I also had asthma. I was, it was a very interesting, fun... So, after Haverchuk, you were, like, the nerd kid? Uh, I mean, I, I, I guess so. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> that was... It would fit, I suppose, but... Um, yeah, but uh, that was that was a nerdy-ish character. Well, when you were doing that, the Haverchuk character, um, like that scene, like w- like Judd's recollection of it was that was something from his childhood. Do you remember that scene mm-hmm. where you're just sitting there watching television? Yeah, totally. What what was your experience of it of doing that? Um, Judd and uh, one of the other writers was uh, they were screaming out jokes uh-huh. to me. Because that whole scene is, um, uh, you know, without without sound audio. Yeah. So they were just oh, you're just sitting there watching, and they knew it was not there was not going to be any sound. Yeah, and they were just screaming out jokes. I was watching. I was looking at a blank screen at that point, um, uh-huh. and they were just shouting out um, jokes that they remembered from their childhood, and and what ended up just becoming the dirtiest jokes that they could think of uh-huh. to try to make me laugh. Yeah, and they succeeded. <laughs> So that's the that's the beauty of acting. That's what really happened. Mm-hmm. But within the story, it was this difficult world you were living in, and uh-huh. we were experiencing you having the one bit of reprieve that you get from the insanity. Mm-hmm. And what were you, like? What what other things did you do? Because like in my mind, when you're a child actor, which you kind of were, oh, right? For sure, yeah. What, who were you hanging out with? I mean, you, I mean, you're living with Seth, but what do you do for hobbies? Did you build a life for yourself? Do you? Seth and I smoked a lot of weed. Yeah. And uh, that went well for a while. And then... It seems like Seth still smokes a lot of weed. Seth has kept it up. Yeah. He's committed. Uh, yeah. He's, he's built more momentum, I think. Yeah. I, th- I think uh, Snoop Dogg smokes more weed than him, but... Just by a hair? There. Well, I, I asked Snoop Dogg fairly recently how yeah. much weed he smokes per day. Yeah. And he said uh, a half ounce. What? Uh, well, he said it... First, he said, uh, depends what day. And I said, today. Yeah. He said, a half ounce because I'm working. I said, oh, well, how much on a regular day? Ounce and a half. <laughs> wow. Is that a control? Yeah. I I'm, think it, you yeah. Build up a, I think you build up a, a tolerance. Ounce and a half a weed. Oh, for sure you do. <laughs> but, I mean. <laughs> do you smoke still? No, I quit a long time ago. I kind of started, I had trouble sleeping recently, and so I started smoking a little bit of weed again. Did it help? To go to sleep, yeah. Works wonders. And but what what other things do you do? 
You're a mystery to me. Like, I was concerned. I'm like, I, I hope uh, we can talk. <laughs> you know? Because I'm a fan. But I was like, wondering, like what's, uh, what's his private life like? What's he up to, that guy? What do you do for fun? Um, well, I was raised Buddhist, so... Is that true? Yeah. Why would I question that? Are you mm-hmm. lying to me? Martin, uh, are you lying to me? You were nope. <laughs> I'm not lying. Um, what, you mean like Namiyaho Buddhist? Yeah. So your mom was like got into that in the 60s, early 70s? Yeah, my mother and father both got into it in 1981. I was born in 82. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, and, and it's, it's stuck. I mean, even though I haven't necessarily um, consistently practiced, I've, it's a huge part of my life and, like, my fundamental core. Really? Yeah. Can you explain it to me? Will it help me? Because I'm like, you seem very mm-hmm. calm, and mm-hmm. you seem okay with yourself. Uh, these are things I don't possess. <laughs> so, if you were to... <laughs> you, you do. I I mean... Like if like, what does it mean to be brought up as a Buddhist? I've only talked to one other one, and he was, you know, his family is very involved in like, you know, se- you know, uh, kind of spreading the message of, mm-hmm. of that particular form of Buddhism mm-hmm. at the time that it became popular, mm-hmm. because it was a time mm-hmm. where it, it's interesting to me that Los Angeles and Hollywood in particular mm-hmm. becomes like this testing grounds for things that would be assumed as cults in a way. Mm-hmm. But that thing really took off. I mean, the the place I remember from it, from it the most is in uh, the Hal Ashby movie, The Last Detail, mm-hmm. where uh, Randy Quaid, you know, stumbles into a Buddhist, you know, to that particular form. So I was like, well, that must have been going on in the 70s because mm-hmm. that's where it sort of took off here, right? Mm-hmm. So w- what does one do as a Buddhist? What were the things that you learned? Well, it's fundamentally it's based on the principle that everyone is capable of becoming a Buddha, um, of achieving Buddhahood in this lifetime. Uh-huh. Um, How close are you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a large goal. Okay. Um, but, uh, is it one of those pretend goals? Like it's just to give you hope? Uh, no, I, I do think it's possible, but it's, um, it's, it's different from, I think the way that, um, that Buddhism is um, thought of and like, you know, you shave your head and you wear a robe and you go to the top of a mountain and you find peace in mm-hmm. nature and, and away from civilization. Right. Um, this counter counters that entirely in that you challenge yourself with the superficial realities of our society. Right. And, and use those to facilitate your growth and development as a human being. Okay. So what does Buddhahood mean? Um, I, I ultimately like a place, a place of, uh, peace uh-huh. and enlightenment, um, and respect for, uh, yourself and your environment. Uh-huh. Um, and the ultimate goal of the organization of yeah. the, the Soka Gakkai, mm-hmm. um, which is initially it was the Soka Kyoku Gakkai, which meant value creation and educational society. Mm-hmm. And now it's Soka Gakkai, which is value creation society. The, the ultimate goal is um, world peace. So okay. Seems very simple. It seems like, you know, I, I should be a beauty pageant winner right now talking about world peace, but it's really like, it's something that we should all be striving for, and I feel like it's a, it's a forgotten goal as a human being on this earth. I think that's probably true. Yeah, because people have gotten very selfish. Sure. That, you know, we live in a, a sort of narcissistic culture. 100%. Careerists. How do I get what I need? Yeah. How do I get to be what I want? Mm-hmm. So do you chant? I do, yeah. 
daily um i try to yeah and does that help is that med- would you consider that meditation yes and it does help a lot yeah that's amazing so like in in terms of um the practice of chanting and the and the sort of you know practical elements of 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 what you get from that because i i'd like to meditate but i don't so you've kind of transcendental you do tm no i don't do anything i'd I'd like to i think i'd like to sit quietly but i think if you have a chant or a mantra or something you can just do it but you were you did it all your life Mm -hmm. yeah it feels very natural to me i i see sometimes people who are you know new to the organization or to chanting or something Uh their reaction to it and i realize oh what we're doing is weird by normal standards right but um it just seems so absolutely natural to me and that one when like did you get any flack for that ever not that i remember uh-huh yeah like like when except in our family um because my my mom is it comes from like a very catholic family mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so i think they um disliked the, the fact that she veered away from catholicism and god and um and the funny thing is like both religions practice peace or like that's that's their message yeah and acceptance you know specifically right. like you look into the depth of catholicism and it's about accepting other people and the differences and forgiving people right and it's so funny how difficult that seems to be as when it's actually needed to put into practice yeah well you know yeah, I mean? yeah yeah the, i mean the not to you know shit on catholics yeah i'm not i mean that's, that really wasn't my attempt but i i, I just thought it was funny that you know that the, how, how difficult it was to put in, to put into practice when like that's one of the fundamental rules of the religion. Well, I think that that I think most religions set out to to you know to be pretty sort of proactive in terms of people behaving properly and mm-hmm. living a decent life. But then the politics of the religion and the the organization of the religion and uh, you know the powers that you know the people that take power within religions uh, kind of fuck things up. Yeah. But also with Catholicism, you get the hell business, which is a little too terrifying for me to even wrap my brain around. Yeah. Were you raised? Jewish, conservative-ish Jewish, not real with any real sense of God um, or how to use God mm-hmm. or you know what it really meant. It was always sort of an abstract, never something practical. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, in terms of what you're dealing with, it, there seems to be some practicality to it. It's like you can get some relief from engaging in this and there's not necessarily a deity that needs to be yeah. uh, placated or, <laughs> or, or appeased. Yeah. There doesn't seem to be any um, uh, uh, punishment for mm-hmm. uh, transgression. Mm-hmm. How does Buddhism deal with transgression? Um, well, I mean, mistakes are a part of life and... Um, I think, is there a list of mistakes? No, the, I mean, I mean, it comes down to like moral karmic understanding. Mm -hmm. So you recognize in your environment how you're treated and, and accepting that as something that you deserve as opposed to something that, as opposed to pointing a finger of blame at whatever is causing you this problem. Mm -hmm. So you always recognize yourself as the thing that can change in any environment as opposed to trying to change your environment because that's always impossible. But are you supposed to innately know what's morally improper? I mean, where do those lessons come from? Like, okay. Yeah, but but they come more through human interaction, like us talking about what is, I mean, you know innately what's right and wrong. But let's say you're strung out on drugs. 
and yeah. and you're like, wow, this is killing me, and I just blew somebody for drug money. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm chanting. Well then, yeah. Well then, the next moment, every moment is a new opportunity to find yourself on a new path. So as opposed to looking back and blaming yourself for what has just happened mm -hmm. or blaming anyone, um, there's no recourse for what just happened. You're, you're now given the next moment as an opportunity to change for the better. Right. So, so taking that next moment as opposed to focusing on how you've already made mistakes. Right. So, that, so that's the, the sort of eternal present yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. But that isn't in in Buddhism. Isn't there sort of a, a, a duality concept that you know the universe is, you know, is what it is, and like what what is the basic spiritual premise of the Buddhist worldview? Um, that everything is interconnected, mm -hmm. and that you that one human being can change the world one hundred percent. But it isn't through it's through changing yourself, right? So the the constant struggle. Um, is human revolution is what it's called mm -hmm. um, inside the organization. Um, the organization. Now I really sound like a cult member. Um, but the like inside my Buddhist practice, that yeah. we, we refer to it as as human revolution, which is just basically you know looking inside yourself and changing yourself for the better, and being actual proof of the capabilities of this practice. Wow. So. Do you like? Are there? Do you go someplace? There, uh, yeah. Well, we used to be connected with. Um, it's uh, it's all fundamentally based on Nitin Daishonin, mm -hmm. and he's the one that kind of pioneered this idea that everyone can become a bodhisattva, that everyone is a bodhisattva of the earth, and that everyone can attain Buddhahood in this lifetime. Um, and and then and at that point, we were connected with the priesthood. Yeah, and the priests believe that in order to attain Buddhahood, that the normal lay people, lay practitioners, couldn't uh, achieve Buddhahood unless um, I, I don't think they could achieve it at all. But the priests could help them by being the inter, like you know, being the middleman right. between them and and um, God. Yeah, and, and you is know. there a God? No, it's a. Uh, um, the mystic law of cause and effect, uh -huh. karma, um, but the interconnectedness of all living right. things. It's, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. So, so that the 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 type of Buddhism you practiced was sort of one of these. It took it from a philosophical, almost you know, insulated um, and very specific um, idea to something that everybody could engage in. Mm -hmm. So that was the that was the idea that was the transition into the type of Buddhism that you're you're practicing the the difference mm -hmm. between uh, getting getting in touch with the big nothing mm -hmm. and just you know sitting in an enlightened state. Mm -hmm. This was like sort of like wait well we've got to be able to take these ideas and make them practical and you mm -hmm. know and and applicable to everyday people. Yeah, and that's where that's where that comes in. Yeah. Well, it seems to be working. I, I feel more relaxed just talking. To you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're welcome to come to a meeting anytime you like. Really? Yeah. Is that? Uh, um, do you, is there a, a an idea that you you should reach out to other people? Yeah, I mean, I think I was pushed away because I, I stopped practicing for quite some time. Yeah. I, I think I've kind of been pulled back towards it. Part of that being my father's having kind of health issues, um, and so. Um, I've been spending a lot more time with him and I've been chanting for his health. Um, and recently, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. this, this is, 
within the last six months or a year. And so... So you were sort of not as active and now you're more active again? Yeah. So it's a way... It, were there other points in your life where where, where there was crisis or... or frustration and and you know spiritual or existential dilemma that kind of pulled you back in short term yes yeah this this feels like um a new ground like i have a, a better foothold on it now uh-huh. with this and is your father still practicing yeah 100 percent. oh yeah is he doing all right or um he's doing he's doing okay it's a battle man it's, yeah it's a it's a pretty severe battle so we're in the midst of it but uh-huh um, but he's got a great deal of hope and determination. So oh, that's great. Yeah. Okay. Now let's talk about from you know your relationship with with Judd because for me, like I don't watch a lot of television. Mm-hmm. Like I saw Party Down and I was mm-hmm. happy to see you. Mm-hmm. And like I, you know, it, it it seemed like you sort of were in this world of 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 comedies that has been come that has become the dominant force in comedy. The people that you were involved with from Freaks and Geeks, you know, with Seth and everybody. Mm-hmm. But like, um, but the movie thing when I saw you in uh, in Knocked Up, I was like, "Holy shit! Oh, there he is!" You know, <laughs> like, like where's he been? But you've been working the whole time. No, I'd, I'd had a pretty big gap, I think, in between Freaks and Geeks and then Knocked Up. Yeah, Party Down came after Knocked Up. Yeah, um, where like I got a tattoo and like decided I wasn't going to be an actor anymore, and it was mostly due to not feeling um, respected and encouraged by my environment. I think the the people that and 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 I don't I can't blame it on them because it was my decisions that put me in that position. But um, like my agents and shit at the time were terrible and didn't really care about me or know how to influence me. In so fact, so there was a problem. So coming out of like so this was after Freaks and Geeks, after a couple of movies uh-huh. where you were sort of being typecast as this dorky kid. Yeah. And you what you hit a wall? I yeah, I, I definitely hit a wall. What'd I, you get? What kind of tattoo? Uh I got this thing. The star. A bleeding star. Yeah. What's the meaning? Uh, yeah. Um at the time anyways. At the time I think it's, it's evolved quite a bit, but um at the time <laughs> Good, it, I'm glad it's still evolving. <laughs> yeah, it's it's still evolving. <laughs> uh, at the time it really just represented my um what I what I didn't like about the business and what I didn't want to be consumed by. Which was um the selfish nature, the business side of things. Right. It wasn't about what I loved about um acting or creation or storytelling. Uh-huh. It was all money driven and and uh you really had to prove yourself to be an asset to to these people and they had very specific expectations out of you yeah which were all financial like you really had to meet these expectations that didn't fit into my parameters right of desire and, well they they probably were kind drive. of cornering you to be some sort of clown um yeah well they just stopped working for me to be honest yeah. the, the only time i got phone calls and and f- there i've felt like that more often than not in uh in my life that that like that is for some reason my place that like i'm not that like i feel like agents oftentimes when they when they are representing <laughs> yeah. me they're just fielding calls a lot of the time right as opposed to like fighting for me to be in you know movies that they're packaging or giving me opportunities that i don't necessarily have on my own i don't know if that exists anymore that type of agent yeah maybe right 
I mean, I know that they are packaging things, but um, sure. But there's this romantic idea that, like, you know, like he's out there working for me. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. They really. I, there are oftentimes I wonder why ten percent of my money goes to someone that, and I, and to be honest, at the moment, I really like the people that I'm with. Yeah, I like them as human beings, and I like talking to them. And mm-hmm. I feel like they have a lot of wisdom when I talk about the projects that you know are on the table or something. But it's it's still like I don't I don't really know where I stand or how much. Um, I'm gaining in a given moment, right? Or a day, or so. What was week that? Or month. When you got the tattoo and turned your back on it, like, well, how did that manifest itself? What was your plan? Um, well, I got a job for one day as a barista. I mm-hmm. got paid two dollars to get a test, <laughs> to go be a test barista for a day, um, and then that was the only job I think I've had aside from acting. Um, and then knocked up came up. So it wasn't that long a period. No, and I'd had I'd kind of decided I wanted to get back into it, and but how and long was it before, like you know, when you said "fuck this"? I mean, was it years, or was it? Uh, I think I had quit for a year. So you had money saved from freaks and geeks and stuff. No, I went broke. You did. Yeah. Now, was there any part of your Buddhist nature that thought like this is an opportunity? Uh, no, I think I was in like the the. I was in the state of hell. I was not happy at all. I was miserable for the most part. I was terribly depressed. Even through Knocked Up, through shooting that movie, I was in a pretty bad way. What were, so how did that manifest itself? Were you living alone? Um, I think I was living with my mom at the time. I was 22 or 23. And, yeah. and whatever the case is, I, I'm sure that's not terribly old to be living with your parents, but um, I had moved out at 17, so to like go back and live with my mom again was just... A, a rancid idea like just such a pu- like terrible like you failed yeah it was it, it felt so demeaning and demoralizing yeah. and ha- was she supportive she was incredibly supportive she moved and concerned i imagine oh to, yeah yeah very very concerned but she she gave up a lot to um help me uh including selling her she had a beautiful place on the beach which is where she was going to retire and she sold that um and kind of ended up getting fucked over i i remember um, but then she sold that so that she could get a much bigger place a little bit further east that that we could live in together and have more space. Oh, uh, yeah. So she was worried. Now, were you, did, were you on medicine or did you, like, what what were you doing? You were mm-hmm. just, like, in dark place? Yeah. And you weren't being, you'd given up on the spirituality element of your life or what? I was still kind of chanting here and there, but that wasn't, uh, I wasn't driven to do it. It's weird because it's not an unusual age to go through that. No. But the fact that you'd had this success mm-hmm. and that you'd had your dreams sort of shattered for fairly ideological reasons. I mean, it sounds like you probably could have kept working, mm-hmm. right? I don't know. Oh, they just hung you out to dry. That's what it felt like, yeah. So, I, re- I remember calling my agent, my buddy David, David Crumholtz, at the time. I like talked to him on the phone. I was like, I don't feel like they're doing anything for me. I was in my car and I was you know, just going off to him about it and he was like, giving me all this advice and he was like this is what you have to do you have to give him an ultimatum you have to call them and you have to say fuck this um you're fired either you're gonna start fucking working for me or you're fired um and uh and so after that phone call it got me all fired up and i i called and i said basically that that like uh either you start working for me or i don't think we should be working together anymore i should i should be with someone that is going to work for me and she was like okay i totally understand so and I was like, well, well like, <laughs> what, what, what the fuck? Yeah. And I, and I realized through that phone call that like, 
this is how she had felt for two years. But because jobs had continued to come in, right, she was just taking free money as opposed to telling me like, hey, I don't give a shit and I'm not working for you at all. She just kind of left me there gathering money for her based on the work that I had already uh, done. Yeah, gotten on my own because of my body of work at that at that time. And that's, uh, a, that's a that's a brutal realization. It was really hard to take that in and realize that like this was just a terrible human being. But that's in some way the nature of the being business an, being an agent. Yeah. Like absolutely. Fundamentally, you're just looking to make your company. This is your job to make your company as much money as you can. And so, if you drop someone that's even bringing in a small amount of money, of course, you don't waste any time working for them. But it, but someone who's bringing in a small amount of money, it's not beneficial for you to drop them yet. Right. No. They're like, who knows what could happen? Yeah. That guy could get a call, and then I could, you know, get a big payday. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh yeah because like there's also this idea. There's a romantic idea of, of who they are and that they're working for you and that they represent you and that, yeah. you know, you have your shoe in the door and all that shit. And, you know, there's something about show business, about the agent. But, you know, well, I don't know if it was the same experience, but you think like, well, these are my friends and you know my best interest is, you know, they have my best interest in mind. But then there comes that day where you're like, they don't give a fuck. We're just these movable pieces. And if they can't move the piece, they don't mind just sitting with it. Yeah. Until it's 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 heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. So you just felt stranded. Mm-hmm. So now you're without an agent, and you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. And your mom, who has been through this, I imagine before. Yeah. Must add some guidance on it. I don't think I consulted her about what was going on in my life at that point. Uh huh. So you're you're in the darkness for a year, mm-hmm. getting bleeding star tattoos. Yeah. Well, Jay, were you suicidal? No. You were just pissed i mean uh i'd be lying if i said i've never had like a suicidal thought yeah there's a huge difference between having that thought and bringing it into actuality yeah one is self-pity pity and the other one is you know you mean business yeah Um, (laughs) yeah yeah so so then out of nowhere uh judd calls um well i think it you know these things start so much earlier than you're aware of right as an actor and so i think it'd been in the works for a while and perhaps it was one of the driving forces behind, um, you know, some of the people in my life that kind of came to be like my manager. Now I don't, I, I know that this thing was happening before he and I were together, but, uh, he's, I mean, he's done a great job for me in a lot of ways, so yeah. I wouldn't hold it against him, but, um, this thing was happening and he reached out to me and, and then, you know, a month later I found out about knocked up, you know, kind of happening, I think, um, and my agent at the time, who was like this small kind of boutique agent, yeah, who wanted to be like a painter and, <laughs> you know, like really kind yeah. of live this cliche, like this L.A. cliche. Yeah. Um, he, I remember firing him because I, we had a conversation about the business side of it. And I was like, well, I want to be more business savvy. Yeah. If, you know, if I'm going to continue um, doing this, I just want a better head on my shoulders so that I don't, you know, feel unaware Um and you know blindsided yeah um at any point so i just wanted to ask as many questions and the first question was do you think we should get a lawyer and um you know just to like deal with the the fine tuning of yeah. the contract and stuff like that and my agent at the time who just like didn't care or have had a <laughs> business mind he was just like Meh, i don't th- i think this is all we're gonna get and then i talked to my uh manager um and he was like uh I don't think it'll hurt, and I know a guy who's good who can 
um, do it. We'll do it pro bono the first time around, right? Just to prove his worth, you know, right? So we did that, and it ended up being so crucial to my financial stability f- for years to come. Really, for the knocked up contract, yeah, which like wasn't a, like a, it was just like having a precedent of getting something after the movie's released, getting some like uh, you know getting like allotments of money that were predetermined. Yeah. If the movie reached certain goals. Right. Which wasn't a tremendous amount of money. Really, right. Really. Especially considering the, you know, that it had to reach hundred, a hundred million dollars first. Right. Um, but like, you know, these small amounts of money meant the world to me at that yeah. point. Because I was completely broke. Right. Um, so the fact that like he was just nonchalant, didn't give a shit, I, I ended up firing him for it. And you worked, it worked out okay. Because it probably did make a hundred million, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, I did. So after, so after knocked up, you do party down. Yeah, and that was fun, right? Oh, that was amazing. I was ready to enjoy. Yeah, again. Oh, and it, and it turned everything around. Yeah, because knocked up. Like if you think about it, like you tell me you're in this dark place, and that character sort of lent itself to, <laughs> to yeah. a certain amount. Of- well, I think it has to. I mean, my life had to bleed into that. <laughs> yeah, or else I wasn't being honest because right. it, it was so defining of my life at that point. Like. It was in every part of the way I was living. Yeah. What, um, there's the darkness and the defeat yeah. and the anger? Yeah. Well, that character was, a, it's an odd character and it was a little bit disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mission accomplished. But, but do you, when you, because you're known for doing comedies, but they're, they are sort of, there's a lot of heart in them, but do you consider yourself mm-hmm. a comic actor? Uh, I feel like I, I'm told it so much that I just have associated it with what I do, but... I don't. I don't think um, that's a defining characteristic in the in what I bring to what I do. Yeah, I don't think it has to be comedic. So the party down that that didn't survive. That must have been pretty heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's the way it goes. I'm just fucking used to it now. I mean, uh, to be honest, it's more surprising to me um, that that like right now I'm a part of something that is um, living up to its potential. That like in all ways, is Silicon really, Valley is a great show. Yeah, it's 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 such an amazing experience to be supported by a network, by an HBO has gone above and beyond what they need to do, and and they love the show. So I'm I'm, much. I'm a tough audience, but I really like it. And I'm in in like you know uh, T.J. Miller used to bother me, but like yeah. I got to give it to you guys. I mean, you really they're they're in Kumail. Who I know well yeah. as a comic, and you know TJ, I don't know that well, but you know he always annoyed me. And Josh Brenner's on my show. Mm. Uh, he he plays my assistant on Marin, and he kind of mm. pulled out for three episodes to do my show while he was shooting Silicon Valley. So like I I feel like I have something personal like at, not at stake, but like I would be more judgmental because I know everybody. Mm-hmm. But like it works so fucking well. It's so funny, and it's so like the ensemble works, and and the characters are so well defined, and they seem to really uh, be you know great comic characters yeah we got i mean we got really lucky too at how open mike was in the evolution of it um because i think when i first read the script i wasn't super excited about it why um because there was there there was something missing i think also i'd i'd talked to my friend before i'd read it and he said the same thing so i already had that in my mind that like maybe this wasn't the best script um but I remember reading it, and there are pieces there that are beautiful. But but there was something in the pilot that I mean, it's all changed from, yeah. from when I read that first right. pilot. But um, aside from what was there, was most crucial is what wasn't there, which like Kumail and I weren't really a part of it. Right. It was more about 
the two kind of main guys, the guy that runs the house and Thomas's character. TJ so, and... Uh, TJ and Thomas. Which one's Thomas? Thomas Middleditch. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, right. So the main guy, the main yeah. Guy. Um, so it was really kind of about them more, and the side characters in the house were just that. Right. And then... Uh, these girls that come up to Silicon Valley and this B storyline, which was these girls who come up to meet rich dudes and fuck them and take their money, essentially, or like become. But they're not rich even in them. it anymore. They, they, yeah, they unfortunately just kind of. I mean, even in reading that first pilot, I remember feeling like this isn't like you kind of have to pick right one path. Right, you're either following these girls or you're following these guys. Right, because they don't even really meet up in that first pilot. Yeah, they like barely interact a little right. bit. Um, and it's just such a different tone. And I think the, the pilot itself found itself. Uh, God, I hope no one is like feels disrespected when they <laughs> listen to this. Um, but uh, this is just how I feel about it. Uh, they like the, the way that it uh, evolves, like really embodies the protagonist. Like you, ha- you have someone to root for uh-huh. and you have this group of guys that came together um, by way of uh, Mike and and um, uh, Dave Krinsky and and Altschuler, um, like getting on board with the evolution of it, uh-huh. and so like I wasn't a part of the, the initial pilot, the script, and neither was Kumail really, mm-hmm. and and so these characters kind of evolved, and they're like we need this group, and right? So the group mentality kind of became a thing, and I th- and that's what it is about, is yeah. Like this group of really weird guys going on this journey together yeah well the 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 satanic element and the the crowley stuff yeah like it seems to be like it it, it, it's kind of something that you know it seems very suited to you in in the way that he's sort of like strangely emotionally disconnected but very justified in in his philosophy Mm -hmm. like that he's countering what what's probably emotional or, or or insecurity on some level with this this um, this dark philosophy, yeah. Which um, well, how did you feel about that? What did you resonate with that? Did you have to do research for that? Did you just stick with the script, or what did you do? I re- I read um, the Satanic Bible, Anton Lavey's book, Anton Lavey's right. Satanic Bible. Yeah. Um, I I haven't finished it yet. It's it's quite a read, but it's really interesting. Yeah. Um. And that's that's what kind of informed a lot of just be have a shameless good time. What I brought to it, yeah, yeah. But it's funny, also coming from this place of um, almost peacefulness. Like mm-hmm. he's like just at at such like he has such confidence in himself, yeah, and seems to be the only one that does, yeah. And I think it comes from this place of knowing how this is how the world works. If everybody read the fucking Satanic Bible, right. you'd also know that like <laughs> giving a shit about anything is pointless. Um, that's also sort of on some level in some you know kind of malignant way that Buddhism is, speaks to some of that yeah not morally right but in ter- existentially it does yeah, totally <laughs> yeah. were you able to make that connection um, I, I mean I suppose uh, now for sure but <laughs> at the time I think it was it was purely rooted in this satanic and, and are you having a, a good time oh my god it's. Uh, I mean, I've been really fortunate to be a part of uh, Freaks and Geeks, which, uh, uh, I mean, just an incredible experience, top to bottom, soup to nuts. And then um, Party Down as well, just mm-hmm. a great group of people. And the purpose behind both of those shows was very pure. Mm-hmm. And this as well, like, I, I, to be around, I mean, we're like a family. And to be a part of something where 
you know that whether this goes or not, whether whether we are forced to be around each other or not, um, by way of HBO picking us up for season after season, um, I'll be friends with these people. These are you know yeah these were these are lifelong friends that I've made already. That's that's sweet. Yeah. And how many did you put, do? We did eight the first season. And uh, I believe we're doing either eight or ten the second season. Yeah, so that just got it got picked up, and you guys are going. Mm-hmm. When do you start shooting? We start shooting in October. Well, Martin, it was great talking to you. Yeah, likewise. The time just flew right by. Good. It was fun too. Yeah. All right. Well, that was great. I loved getting to know that guy. And I, you know, I don't. Um, you know, we we talked a bit. About me going to one of them Buddhist meetings, and I don't. What have I got to lose by doing that? Maybe, maybe that would be it. I mean, it seems like you know he got a lot of clarity from it. I'm always nervous, so I'm always nervous about going to meetings. But maybe, but maybe I will. I don't even. Uh, yeah, I mean, it'd be nice to hang out with him and on that level, on a spiritual level. Oh my God, I'm so jacked. I need a nap. I went hiking today. This seems to be becoming a tradition, doesn't it? I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. I think that we should all celebrate. do that that rhythm i feel like i get stuck in like three chords maybe That's like a, like a, a little talking blues business, isn't it? I could sing some like you know uh, like um, I gotta write maybe I'll write a talking blues about monkey's bladder I didn't prepare I'm not prepared so I really can't do a talking blues because because I didn't write anything and that's no way to, to do a talking blues so let's just Let's just pretend that that I've written a talking blues. And that right now I'm saying like a very important thing that kind of strings itself out like Bob used to do. And you just keep talking and keep talking and you don't know when you're going to go back to the G and you're kind of waiting an abnormally long time for him to get back to the main verses of his talking blues and then all of a sudden you're in it.
Boomer lives!